All right, we're going to do another morning report case. My name is Jeremy Moeller. I'm one of the neurologists at Yale, and I'm here with three of our residents. So we've got uh, Chris Trainer, one of our PGY4s. Hi, Chris. Hey, guys. I have John Picard, another one of our PGY4s. Hello. And I've got Lindsay McAlpine, one of our PGY3 residents, who's going to present the case. Hi, Lindsay. Hello. So, Lindsay, do you want to get started and uh, tell us a little bit about your case? Sure. So we have a 55-year-old woman who came in. Um, she has a history of poorly controlled uh, hypertension. Um, she's presenting with 10 hours of left-sided weakness and difficulty speaking. And how do you want to spend our time during this case? I think this is a good case that forced me to review in detail the anatomy and localization. Great. So why don't you flesh out the story a little bit more for us then? Sure. So she went to bed uh, at 9 p.m. the night before, and she was in her usual state of health. Um, and then she woke up at 12 a.m. to use the bathroom and felt like her left side was heavy. Um, she didn't make much of it and went back to bed. She woke up again at 6 a.m. Um, and the weakness was uh, much worse. So she called EMS. When she got to us, she had a blood pressure of 187 over 103, um, and her speech was slurred. She had significant left-sided weakness. Of note, she had had a recent ED visit uh, the week before with lightheadedness, and she was found to be in hypertensive emergency um, and started on three new hypertensives because she had not been taking anything for years, but she had been taking the three medicines in the last week. Chris, I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, can you talk me through your thoughts so far and what ad additional information is going to help you uh, sort out this case? Sure. So, um, you know, it sounds like we have a middle-aged woman with relatively newly but poorly controlled hypertension, like Lindsay said, um, who had a sudden onset of a neurologic change. So immediately my mind goes towards vascular conditions. Um, and it sounds maybe to be a little bit more specific, um, sounds like a little bit of a stuttering case. And given just the symptoms she's describing could be more localized to a small vessel territory because it sounds like she had kind of a stuttering um, onset that with progressive worsening as opposed to just a sudden onset of all symptoms at once um, in a really severe sense. And given the hypertension, obviously that would be the most likely vascular etiology. Um, so that's kind of immediately my thoughts is that we're going towards a, a down a vascular road um, as opposed to other um, etiologies. And when you say vascular, are you uh, alluding specifically towards acute ischemic stroke or are you thinking other vascular abnormalities? I mean, technically it could be either, you know, certainly uh, ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke since, um, you know, hemorrhage can expand over time. So similar, um, you know, kind of stuttering course, um, but um, something you know, either some sort of stroke, I would say, is most likely. Um, but obviously, the differential could be broad and include things like vasculitis as well. What other pieces of information do you want? So I want, obviously, a full exam, um, because I think in terms of localizing, you know, my mind when I see here left-sided weakness and dysarthria, and I, again, I'm thinking more of a small vessel territory goes to either subcortical or brainstem. Um, so I'd be really interested to know if she had any cranial nerve findings, which obviously would push us more towards brainstem. Um, and then whether there are any cortical signs, which obviously would take us into a different stroke etiology. John, I'm going to put you on the spot now. Anything more you want to know from history before we go to the examination? So, I mean, we get a little bit about 
symptom onset. And it sounds like, again, from her medical history, uh, what's been going on. I mean, aside from the diabetes and the hypertension, um, obviously we want to know if there's any other medical history that may be pertinent to this, if she's had prior neurologic insults, um, if she has any other neurologic diagnoses. And then sort of as Chris alluded to already, you know, trying to tease out neurologic symptoms that you may have experienced that could point you towards a different localization. So, you know, visual changes that may, you know, sorting out double vision versus loss of vision, which you cortex versus, uh, you know, uh, lower um, internal capsule brainstem situation. So uh, determining any other review of systems that may be pertinent. So Linda, getting back to the case, can you walk us through the neurological review of systems? And I guess we're particularly interested in a history of focal neurological dysfunction in the past and any more subtle findings that might suggest uh, clues towards localization. So in um, of note, she did not have a history of diabetes, only the high blood pressure um, before this. And then um, she, you know, her neurological review system, she had no headache. She um, had no visual loss or double vision. And she had no loss of consciousness or um, abnormal movements. She had dizziness the previous week with her hypertensive emergency, um, but not presently. No tremor or other, uh, or confusion or difficulty with her speech. So pretty much negative besides the, the weakness. She's not a smoker. She doesn't drink. No illicit drugs, cocaine, anything like that? No. No family history of focal neurological dysfunction, inflammatory diseases, uh, uh, vascular disease, et cetera? Nothing that we know of. Uh, so, Lindsay, why don't you talk us through her physical examination? Sure. So, when I went into the room, she was alert and oriented. Um, she knew where she was. She could give me a history. Her speech was fluent, but she her speech was slurred. I could understand her, um, but I could tell that it wasn't normal, and she endorsed that it was not normal. Her naming, repetition, comprehension, um, and her, her stroke cards, all of that was intact, um, except for the slurring. And then on her cranial nerve exam, um, her pupils were equal round reactive. Her visual fields were full. Extraocular muscles were intact with no nystagmus. Um, and she was noted to have a left, uh, mild left lower facial droop. Going on to her motor exam, uh, she had a left upper extremity drift. Um, her right upper and lower strength was completely intact. Her left upper was slightly weak, so four out of five throughout the entire arm. And her left leg um, was three out of five. Uh, throughout. So she could lift her her leg off the bed, but very briefly, um, and it would drift right back down to the bed, um, could not handle any uh, confrontational testing. Um, and then her coordination, she had some difficulty with left finger to nose, which could be classified as weakness rather than dysmetria. Um, and then she was unable to participate with the left leg for heel to shin because of her weakness. Um, and then notably, she had impaired sensation um, to light touch, pinprick, temperature throughout her left arm and leg. Oh, sorry. Did you mention her reflexes? And then her reflexes were hypoactive, uh, one plus throughout, no asymmetry, upper and lower. And the toes? Uh, down going. Uh, you mentioned the asymmetry of her sensation in her arm and leg. What about on her face? 
it was uh it it was decreased on her left on her left lower face sometimes we talk through the uh muscles involved in enunciation and and those involved in dysarthria and we have uh lingual muscles uh the things that allow us to say ta 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 uh we have buccal muscles which allow us to say pa 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 and we have palatal muscles which allow us to say ka 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 and if any of those are weak, we will get a softening of those consonants. Um, were you able to sort out uh, the nuances of the weakness or was it all of the, all of the muscle groups? Yeah, she, it, she was slurred um, and had difficulty with all, all the sounds. All right. And that, that can be helpful for localization because it suggests it's a less of a selective process and more of a, a diffuse uh, process involving coordination of the muscles involved in speech. So, uh, Chris, I'm going to put you back on the spot again. Uh, so you hear about the exam. Uh, that is some uh, mild weakness, uh, both upper motor neuron weakness of the face, uh, some weakness of the arm and leg on the same side, on the left side, some dysarthria, and then uh, what sounds like nearly complete sensory dysfunction on that side as well. One last point, I think we talked about the incoordination with finger nose. Uh, sometimes you can see that with upper motor neuron weakness, and we sometimes call that pseudodysmetria when you have some subtle upper motor neuron weakness and you get that. But Chris, can you talk uh, through uh, these findings and how they refine your differential diagnosis? Yeah. So um, as I was alluding to, and I was speaking before, I think, um, again, we're kind of in potentially two different uh, localizations. Um, so I think one would be kind of a, you know, a thalamocapsular and near the internal capsule type stroke because you have on the right side, because we could hit the motor fibers in the internal capsule, giving you the left-sided weakness, um, uh, including the face, which is the genu, and then obviously sensation on the left side, both the face and the body, um, being the kind of right thal uh, thalamus in terms of the relay areas, the VPL and VPM nucleus. Um, so that's one possibility. I also think it's still technically possible that we're in the, um, the brainstem as well, um, prior to the crossing of the fibers, although it would be kind of difficult um, with no other cranial nerve findings. Um, since we only have left lower face weakness and um, nothing else, you know, no extraocular movement problems. Um, and dysarthria being a non-localizing sign doesn't necessarily help us, but I think as you said, it's a global process. So it's more likely something that's catastrophically involving a multitude of motor fibers. Um, so I don't know that that really helps us um, narrow those two down. But again, I'm still thinking mostly in the vascular territory, um, you know, whether it's a hemorrhagic or ischemic stroke. Um, the weakness is kind of mild, um, you know, uh, and there are no cortical signs. So I don't think we're, you know, anywhere else in terms of cortex. Um, so that would be my thoughts right now. Lindsay, do you want to talk us through uh, what investigations were done? Sure. So she came in as a stroke code. And so she went uh, straight to the CT scanner. Um, she had a CTA of her head and neck uh, with, with contrast and with a perfusion study as well. Uh, the CTA showed um, no significant stenosis, dissection, or pseudoaneurysm. She did have um, atherosclerosis kind of scattered throughout her anterior-posterior circulation um, without any significant stenosis. Um, when we went back and reviewed it, personally, it was, you know, her posterior cir circulation was notable for a docalitatic 
basilar artery and an atherosclerotic plaque in the basilar artery as well. And then um, her CTA perfusion or her CT perfusion showed that there was no uh, core infarct volume. It was zero. Penumbra was zero. And so given her large uh, syndrome was a little bit puzzling at the time. So. So Chris, what do you want to do now? Yeah. So, I mean, I think at this point, um, you know, just treating her, um, given that we don't have a large vessel occlusion or bleed, I mean, we can probably allow for permissive hypertension. So I know her blood pressure is high already, but allow her to kind of ride for the moment just because we don't um, have a clear idea of where, if anything, where, if any area she's having uh, an acute stroke. Um, but she certainly needs an MRI. And then I think uh, to, to further elucidate um, localization as well as um, the area of stroke, because that would determine what the most likely stroke etiology is in terms of um, if we're thinking of our differential stroke, you know, the large vessel strokes, your small vessel strokes, your paradoxical emboli, cardioembolus, thromboembolus, um, you know, to kind of further help uh, refine those. And then she is young as well. So in terms of if this happens to be a stroke, I think we also have to bring into the differential more rare causes of stroke, hypercoagulability related to malignancy, primary hypercoagulability of hematologic disease, um, things like uh, APLS, um, as well as vasculitis, um, uh, as all potential stroke etiologies as well. But I think urgently, I would allow her blood pressure to remain high and then get an MRI as soon as possible. John, any thoughts about uh, any additional treatment options? So this is at least eight hours uh, since onset, no obvious large vessel occlusion. Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, in this case, we're sort of out of the window. It's almost like a wake-up stroke to a certain extent. I mean, she did have uh, the experience of like symptom onset. It sounded like overnight. Um, so, you know, TPA, if she had presented within the window, I think it would be very reasonable to just provide uh, TPA um, and admit to the neurointensive care unit for management, but it would be risky in this setting. And, you know, there's no data to support TPA uh, this far out from symptom onset, just can be riskier. Um, And then with no clear large vessel occlusion to um, go after from, you know, an interventional standpoint, that's, that's really not an option either. Um, You can just take the standard approach of providing um, aspirin, uh, obviously doing like a swallow evaluation and if unable to pass the swallow with her dysarthria, it may need to be given rectally, um, and then provide, you know, a statin, a statin therapy would just be standard and conservative management moving forward. So Lindsay, why don't you walk us through the next steps based on our discussions here? All right. That sounds good. So we got, the next step was that we got, um, an MRI of her brain without contrast and it showed, um, pretty sizable right-sided pontine stroke. Pretty much the larger territory was in the caudal aspect, and then it, it extended upward as well. And so it was thought to be uh, due to her hypertensive uh, small vessel disease. Um, so she got she was started on aspirin. She was started on a tour of a statin. She was found to have diabetes um, as well, and was started on metformin. Um, There was also a concern that perhaps she had had an artery-to-artery embolus from that plaque in the basilar artery upwards that caused the stroke in the basilar. So, um, but given review of the images and the vessel imaging, that was thought to be less likely. So it was more attributed to the small vessel disease. 
And over the next several days, how did she do? She she actually improved significantly. Um, you know, her, her left facial droop became like a mild left nasal uh, labial fold flattening. Um, her sensation improved and mildly. And then her her left-sided weakness, she went to physical therapy afterwards um, and then followed up in the stroke center. And, and by the time that she was seen a month later in the stroke center, she was doing while ambulating, um, except for in long distances, she would fatigue easily and need a cane. And just to briefly to wrap up and talk through the anatomy, and I think Chris did a good job of this. Again, to summarize her findings, she had uh, sensory dysfunction in the face, arm, and leg on the left side, which was ipsilateral to her subtle motor dysfunction. Uh, and really the places that could be are going to be where sensory and motor fibers or other structures come together. And classically, a thalamocapsular syndrome can give you that, but you can also see some confluence of uh, sensory and motor fibers and maybe sensory more than motor fibers uh, in the pons uh, before these uh, fibers cross uh, to involve uh, facial nuclei and the trigeminal nucleus. The other thing to point out is that in addition to her sensory dysfunction, she really has what is a version of a dysarthria clumsy hand syndrome, maybe a little more extensive than that. But this was a syndrome which was first described by uh, Miller Fisher. And I have to mention that he was a Canadian, uh, any chance I get. Uh, and was initially described with pontine lesions, again, probably the paramedian pons uh, along the basis pontus. Uh, and in this case, one wonders whether the lesion simply extended to involve aspects of the paramedian pons uh, involved in sensation, such as the uh, medial lumniscus uh, tract. So, so we could consider this as a version of a dysarthria clumsy hand syndrome plus. Uh, and again, uh, just as Chris said from the start, we would usually localize this lesion either to the internal capsule or to uh, the paramedian uh, basal pontine region. And uh, these are typically lacunar syndromes. So an excellent syndrome to bring forward and to consider from both an anatomical point of view, but also uh, in terms of pattern recognition of uh, classic lacunar stroke syndromes. Uh, any additional comments from anyone about that? So I think the other thing that's really helpful in these sort of vascular brainstem and something I always come back to as well as reviewing the brainstem rules of four, as well as the um, vascular distribution of the arteries um, feeding at each level of the brainstem, because we often can be confused, I think, by thinking about, you know, eponymous terms like Wallenberg syndrome, where it's actually much easier to just localize using those rules. So I think um, this case brings again, you know, uh, to mind the neuroanatomy of the brainstem and how um, those rules can actually be quite helpful. Can you walk us through the rules of four? Sure. Um, so the brainstem rules of four, um, you know, is a system to think about brainstem anatomy. So you have the four rules. Um, so the first rule is that there are four cranial nerves associated with each level of the brainstem. So cranial nerves one through four are associated with the midbrain, although thinking that the optic nerve and the olfactory nerve are actually above the midbrain. Some people will say there are four cranial nerves above the midbrain. Then there's four cranial nerves in the pond. So that's five, six, seven, and eight. And then four cranial nerves in the medulla, nine, 10, 11, and 12. So that's the first rule. Again, there's four 
cranial nerves associated at each level of the brainstem. The second rule is that uh, in the medial brainstem running the entire length, there are four pathways that all begin with the letter M. So those are the motor pathway, the medial lemniscus tract, so your sensory tract carrying crew touch and vibratory sense. You have your motor nucleus of cranial nerve 5, and then also the uh, MLF, the medial longitudinal fasciculus, which a lesion of can cause the uh, intranuclear ophthalmoplegia. So that's, again, rule two. There are four pathways running in the medial brainstem, each beginning with the letter M, so motor, motor nucleus of five, the MLF, and the medial lemniscus. The third rule is that there are four pathways in the lateral portions of the brainstem that each begin with the letter S, um, so not L, unfortunately, but S, um, and those are the spinothalamic pathways, so that's your uh, pain and temperature pathway. You have the sensory nucleus of five. You have the uh, sympathetic tract, so those are going to be your fibers that can cause a Horner syndrome for example. And then the final one is the spinocerebellar, which is involved in, uh, you know, truncal control, um, as well as, um, you know, some of the fine coordination motor movements. And then, so again, that's the, the third rule. There are four pathways in the lateral portion of the brainstem, each beginning with the letter S. So spinocerebellar, uh, spinothalamic, the sensory nucleus of five, and your sympathetic tracts. And then finally, the last rule is that there are uh, the medial brainstem nuclei, um, so the cranial nerve nuclei that are in the med medial part um, are those that are equally divisible um, into the number 12. So those would be 3, 4, 6, and 12. So again, the oculomotor uh, nerve, the trochlear nerve, the abducens, and then um, uh, the hypoglossal. So those would be located in the medial part of the brainstem, so 3, 4, 6, and 12. So medial midbrain or medial uh, brainstem strokes can cause lesions of those, whereas all the other cranial nerve nuclei are located more laterally. And these rules can be used to predict um, if someone has a particular vascular lesion, whether they're having a lateral or a medial brainstem um, syndrome, and then using the cranial nerves um, can help put you in which level, either midbrain pons or medulla. Wonderful summary. Well, I think we'll leave it at that. We got a great uh, case, some great learning points, and uh, thank you all for uh, participating. And uh, thanks for all participating. And uh, we'll be back soon to do another one of these.